Hello, this is Brian McCormick welcoming you to another edition of the Leadership Podcast Series from the Resource for Leaders, LeaderNetwork.org. Our National Leader of the Month is Eileen McDar. Eileen is an author, speaker, and consultant. As a business author, she has written, Work for a Living and Still Be Free to Live, The Resilient Spirit, and Talk Ain't Cheap, It's Priceless. Her newest book is Gifts from the Mountain, Simple Truths for Life's Complexities. As a speaker, Eileen is in the Speaker's Hall of Fame. Eileen McDar and I spoke about leadership, and she offered interesting and entertaining stories to effectively illustrate the concepts she explained. She begins by talking about her favorite quotation. And now we begin this month's podcast with National Leader of the Month, Eileen McDar. You know, there's so many quotes that just resonate to that. That's really difficult. But there's one that I that I've used in the last two presentations where I'm talking to women as leaders, and it's from Joan Baez, and she says, um, "You don't determine how you will die. You only determine how you will live." How about the favorite book? Uh, you know what? My current favorite book, and this book is I really love this book that is now out, The Last Lecture, by Randy Posh, P-A-U-S-C-H. And I'll tell you why I love it. As a speaker, it makes me say, what would be my last speech? Mm. This was the only chance I got to talk. And what I think Randy has done is he has talked not only how to die, he's really spoken about how to live. And I think it's every everyone, everyone, has a leadership role to play. You might not have a title, but you've got a leadership role to play. That's why we say, how do you lead your life? We don't say play your life, work your life. We say, how do you lead your life? And all leadership starts from the inside out. And what Randy has done is brilliantly said, what is important to me and how do I live in a way that's congruent? And that is something that we also desperately need within our organizations and our enterprises. Can you talk a little bit about how that has changed in the last couple of decades or, or has that been constant in terms of the, the need for personal leadership in our lives and in our organizations? I think it has shifted. Uh, and part of it could be this this capacity for greed. When you pick up the paper and you, you are seeing how these CEOs have made in the United States this gross inequity as far as what they are paid versus what the rank and file is paid. And so and a number of these folks, and we've watched it, they've been rewarded for basically lousy performance. The stock has taken a nosedive, and they're walking away with a potful. There is something ghastly wrong about that. And I think what we are yearning for, we are yearning for wisdom. We are learn- yearning for for leaders in the truest sense of the word, the servant leader, the leader that Jim Collins talks about that moves an organization from good to great, and they do it not for self-aggrandizement, but they, but they do it because they realize when everybody looks good, we all look good. You know, that it's not about me, it's about us and what we create together. I was just with a company, Novo Nordisk, uh, which is a biofarm company, out of the Northeast, they operate on a triple bottom line. Triple bottom line says, and they're equally weighted, economic viability, 
social responsibility, and environmental integrity. That's what I think is true forward-thinking leadership. Hmm. Any other books that you would recommend for aspiring leaders? I do. I love The Art of the Possible by Benjamin Zander, Z-A-N-D-E-R. Um, I love this book because he is an orchestra leader, he is a music teacher, and it's how he conducts both the orchestra as well as his students that helps the student take responsibilities for their lives in the classroom and for their outcome. And I think a leader does that. A leader creates a leader creates a way for people to tap and own the responsibility for the outcome. It's not up for me up for me to take care of you. It's for me to provide a vision and a place where you feel compelled to perform. And I so I love the art of the possible. I do love Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. I also like Peter Block's book, which is The Answer to How is Yes. Sure. Terrific. What about a personal passion or a dream of yours? Um, personal passion or a dream. My, my personal passion is how do I help individuals and organizations unleash the very best of what they've got? How, how do we grow the human talents that we have around us? Um, I, I love that. But part of my uh, dream, if you will, is I would love to be able to create a show that was a replication of what Dave Garraway had three million years ago. It was called Wide, Wide World. And what Dave Garraway did in that show, he was a brilliant broadcaster, what he did was he introduced you to pieces of the world that we didn't know about. And he always concluded it sitting on a stage, holding up his hands and saying, Peace. What I'd love to do is I would like to, to do a show called Our World and Welcome to It and to celebrate what is right. What we see in the reality shows in many cases are things that are wrong. We see individuals striving for individual effort. We have people who literally make fools of themselves. It, 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 to me, in often places, it showcases some of the worst of the human spirit. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a show that took people around the globe so that we broke down the barriers of misunderstanding, we showed what happened in countries that we don't understand, and we showed what happened here in the United States of what is right instead of what is wrong. It's, uh, it's appreciative inquiry at its highest level because it would bring people into people's living rooms, uh, onto their, you know, onto their their computers or whatever, and we got to see the best of what we can be. There's too much negativity now, and I think we it becomes a, uh, a, a death spiral, if you will, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy, and I, I'd love to be able to switch that somehow. Well, I'm on board. I think that sounds great. I, I say right, go let's for it. it. Let's, yeah, let's, let's figure out how to do it. You know? uh, well, speaking of, of the world and some of the places we don't understand, is there a place in the world you most like to visit, or if it's somewhere that you haven't been, is there a place you would really like to visit that you haven't gotten to yet? There are many places in the world I'd love to visit. I think traveling... Traveling and going to places not as the tourist in the cozy comfort world, but the person who comes as an anthropologist and an inquirer, um, because I think there's just so much wisdom to get out of this. This past year, 
we trekked two remote provinces of the Himalayas close toward the India-Pakistan border. Um, we were some of the few um, Westerners to be in that location. Um, unlike people who line up to do the Everest deal, we went to be with those folks, and I learned so much. So I'd, I'd love to be able to, for example, I used to say I wanted to go to Machu Picchu. However, now there is another site that they have just uncovered that is a Machu Picchu on, an, on, an, on, another, um, on another mountain. It is similar to that, and it's, been, it's not really well discovered. I'd love to see that. I would also love to go see the terracotta soldiers of China. Mm. Uh, I, I, that's, always, that's always intrigued me. Um, so I'd love to do those two things, and I'd love to study Spanish in San Miguel de Allende. Wonderful aspirations. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the mentors that you've had that have positively impacted your life or your leadership? Yes. Um, one of them was one of the first bosses I had after I left the field of education. It's a guy by the name of Jeff Nixon at Amelia Island Plantation. He was absolutely a marvelous leader. He had a way of describing the outcome of what he wanted and then stepping back and let you figure out how to make it happen. And was always available if you needed input or advice, would move boulders for you, but basically you owned it. And the thing that I remember one of the biggest lessons on how do you give corrective feedback to someone is I was responsible for uh, I was responsible for mailing out uh, this very important opening of Amelia Island Plantation. We had 850, I think, res uh, property owners at the time, and it was a critical piece, and it was very expensive, and it was had blind embossing to it, all that stuff. And I, well, that was one of the things I was supposed to do. And uh, these lists were developed by the sales executives who were selling parts of this um, land development. And about a week before this big event, this grand opening, I, one of the sales guys comes to me and says, Eileen, none of my folks have gotten their invitation. I said, well, it's possible. I, I've done it. And he said, well, they haven't gotten it. I opened up my file. Don't ask me how, but I did not have his list. It hmm. had disappeared off the planet. I had to go to my boss, Jeff, and say, Jeff, I, I, I don't know what happened, but I, I've, I, I've screwed up. So he said, okay, I'll be right back. Didn't say a word to me. I heard him walk around the hall, go over to the sales side, and I heard a big booming voice. I heard him say to, I think the guy's name was John, said, hey, John, we've screwed up. You're right. Your folks didn't get it, but we'll make it better. And he came back, and I looked at him. I said, Jeff, we didn't screw up. I screwed up. He looked at me, and he got a funny smile, and he said, and it'll never happen again. <laughs> I said, you're right. He said, come on. I'll help you. And he told me we had me do it. That, those, that was way before the days of email. We sent um, telegrams to all of, Je uh, all of John's people, and then Jeff and somebody else who was there in the office sat with me after work sending out the invitations that hadn't gone out. So he, 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 he didn't make me bear the heat alone. He walked that with me showed me how to get out of it, and then helped me fix it. Never had to say another word, but i got to tell you, that that guy could have asked me to walk on coals, and I would have. <laughs> that was such a powerful lesson to me. Wow. What a terrific story. 
<laughs> it's a it's a great story. It's a, it's, it's a great story. And then other people who have provided um, examples for for a period of time, I, I was um, I was involved with Ken Blanchard at the now it's called the Blanchard Companies, and he's a marvelous example, I think, of a, of a leader who absolutely is congruent in what he says and in what he does, and that's uh, that's been a uh, that's been a lovely influence. Hmm. Um, also, when I wrote my first book, Work for a Living and Still Be Free to Live. There was a, a a woman, a nun, who um, I would go uh, attend some of the sessions that she would do that used the work of Ira Progoff, who wrote the journal work at a journal workshop, and she was very instrumental in providing me with with seeds of ideas about not good work but great work. And um, she's since passed away, but um, I, I found her to be to be very inspirational too. Hmm. Now, you had mentioned uh, at the beginning, after you had gotten out of education, what what was your role in education? I was in the classroom. Okay. And then I was asked, I was in the classroom, and I actually was, became, I was only in the classroom for four years, but I was voted as the outstanding teacher uh, of the year for my county. I was good at teaching, but, I, you know, I got that in happenstance by design, and then I went into, I went into business, and there were two options left for me. One was to stay in the classroom, uh, but it was a small rural school, and I would have taught for the second year in a row every one of those children, and I think I had given them all I had. They needed somebody new. I was offered a position within the county, a leadership position, uh, doing Title I reading. But the truth of the matter was, in my heart of hearts, I knew darn well I was not the right person for that job. They had reading teachers who, while I might have the charisma and the vision, I did not have that skill. And I felt that that was setting, setting me up for potential failure and, number two, sending the wrong message to them. So I declined, and that's when I went into the role, which was as corporate communications at that point in time for Amelia Island Plantation, then doing corporate communications for a national health care company out here in California, then with a PR firm handling multinational clients, and then... 28 years ago, starting my own consultancy practice. Wow. How about some advice for aspiring leaders? Advice for aspiring leaders? Um, Well, number one, as I think you have to lead yourself first, your own ethics, your integrity, uh, what is meaningful to you. I believe all leadership comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. So I think the first thing is to examine your own how you're leading your own life. Um, secondly, I think that you need to be willing to make hard decisions, but that is all or not but. And that is also after you have sought the input of people who have ideas that are different from yours. Hmm. And the third thing is that I think a really great leader is someone who allows others to be great. That it's never about me. It's about what we will create together. But can I, as a leader, give you so clear a picture that you can start filling in the blanks with your own words that excites you? I think really good leaders are marvelous picture makers. They're marvelous storytellers. So it's not this mission statement that's three letters, knock their socks off. 
Um, but it's, and, and, you know, return, you know, 15% return to the shareholders. Oh, boy, can I hardly wait to leap up and go through that. I don't think so. It's really that that I can create so compelling of what's possible for us, a preferred future. The people around me say, man, I got it. And here's 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 what would make that even more exciting for me. And we say, okay, add that piece. And here you can add that piece. Um, I had a leadership position at one point in time in which I was on the senior management team for a very large uh, project at the Naval Trident sub-base in Bangor, Washington. And um, we were the private contractors who had come in and won a, a bid against an incumbent contractor and discovered that the folks who were there who had worked for the incumbent were demoralized, didn't have a sense of what was possible. And i got to tell you, to watch how you could turn that organization around, when you created a picture that was larger than all of us, um, in this case, it was what they call in the military MWR, Morale, Welfare, and Recreation. It was everything that would make a Trident sub-base into a community. That's everything from early childhood education to the auto mechanic shop to the NCO club to the officers club to the, you know, anything that would create a sense of community and all the different people, places that, and, and events that go around that. And it was an extraordinary experience to discover what would happen once you created that picture and people felt that you knew what their talents were, that, man, they just responded beautifully. That was kind of my, my job. And one of the things that we uncovered was that people felt that they were kept in the dark, that they never knew what was happening. So I think, you know, I think really good leaders also are very forthcoming. This is what I know and this is what I don't know. Sure. If I, if I figure this out, I'll let you know. But And if you figure something out, you tell me. So we had this, you know, the way you keep people in the dark is, is kind of you treat them like mushrooms. And we said, you know what, we're not going to treat you like mushrooms. Um we went to, and for some reason I came up with this, I always like to deal with pictures. I said, you're strawberries. Strawberries rot if they are covered in black and they die. Strawberries need sunlight. So we became, we created an internal newsletter that was called Strawberry Shorts. And what we did is we talked about so every department knew what everybody else was doing and what was the thing you were celebrating and you were doing right. How did we cross-fertilize each other's ideas? How did we make sure that if you went into this one um, activity that you knew, by golly days, over in the early childhood or in the preschool or over here they were doing this, and oh, by the way, there's an intramural function over here. So we, so we cross-sold all the activities everybody had. Uh, we wore little strawberries on our lapel, and that was the whole thing, is you had to be able to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, uh, but do it in a way that left, uh, there's a, a saying that you could uh, tell people something, you know, and maybe it was something they didn't need to hear, but you could do it in such a way that yeah, you could step on their shoes and not miss the shine. Hmm. And that was the, the, the saying that I gave them. You, you, know, that's, you know, if that's what you need, then that's what we can do. So it was... Um, it was a, it was a great experience, and but once again, it was creating a picture, creating something where people said, "Okay, that's yeah, that, that's how we that's how we need to behave." Oh, that's that's terrific! I like I love that metaphor. Um, transitioning to, I think that's a, a terrific example of of the project you just described. Any other metaphor, story, or analogy for leadership that you would offer? You know, 
I am always looking as a writer, as a consultant, as well as a speaker. I am always looking for great metaphors that that teach me, and I say, oh my goodness. Um, on on my website, there's there's two articles that I wrote which actually use canoeing, canoeing the boundary waters as a metaphor for leadership. Um, there's another article in which I use the garden as a reference, and let me tell you why I chose the garden. I was asked to speak to a major Fortune 100 company that was going through significant uh, turmoil transition, and there were going to be some some hard choices, and part of those hard choices was some people who had been there for a long time. They needed to go. It was time. And I kept thinking, what in the world can I say to them? And I would have all of the HR people, too, and I was out working in my yard. And if you looked at my yard, you would see that I, it looked like an absolutely glorious beds of impatience, which is a multicolored flower but when you got up close to it, if the wind blew, you realized that the bloom was on the tip of about a 12-inch stalk that had nothing to it. Hmm. That the only way that garden would grow is I needed to cut back what was the most prominent there so that I could allow the new growth, and there are it does recede itself, the new growth to come back. And I thought, you know, that's what happens in organizations. And so I began thinking of how do you feed, seed, and weed. <laughs> um, and, and, and feed, seeding, and weeding also has to do with cutting. But you've got to be able to cut judiciously. You've got to know where to cut. You don't come in and take a hacksaw and go after that garden. Also, that certain plants grow in certain places. How foolish of me to try to plant a shade plant out in the full sun. But we do that in our organizations. I've got people who will bloom perfectly for me out of the limelight. I push them in the limelight, and that's not where they grow their talent. Right. Um, I have to know also what, when do you, you know, when do you, what, what, what do you feed what? Some people thrive on a challenging assignment. Just get out of my way and let me do it. And other people thrive when they know that they're behind the scenes and they can watch that team grow. So I think leaders are really aware that this is a garden of, of, of variegated color and kinds of plants, um, and then of course weeding. You gotta know. You gotta know when. You gotta know when to weed. You gotta know when. What is it that no longer adds value anymore? Sure. And you gotta. As I see, you gotta know your season and grow your season. Now, what? A, can you explain that one? Yeah. Uh, know your season and grow your season. If if I put a product in the marketplace and it's not time, I'm out of the season. Mm. I have to know when is the optimum time to make shifts in my business. Um, I have to know at what point in time do we need to grow this one department. For example... Uh, right now, when you see people doing cutbacks in business, oftentimes they cut back. Uh, they they cut back in places like the customer service reps. Let's get rid of them. You know what? At the very time I want customers to come in and feel heard and served, what are you doing? You get rid of the people who serve them instead of using this as a time because they're my they're my front line to deal with the customer. Customer can't find anybody to answer the questions. They're out of there. Sure. On the flip side, I was just in the Apple store. 
I have never seen so many employees in one store in my life. Hmm. Do you want a question answered? My golly, days are there. They are absolutely there. They have figured out how do I create an experience for the people who might not even own an Apple, an iPhone, a Mac, whatever, you know, iPod, whatever, but I'm there to help you have an experience. And I got to tell you, because of the way in which they have operated, um, I, I got it. I went out and bought an iPhone. <laughs> and I am technologically incompetent, but I know that there is a place that I can go to and get help. So, so when I say know your season and grow your season, um, what is it that is, you know, for you to do the business? Where are the people that are your business interfaces? And what's the time in which we need to grow? If you have a cyclical business, um, it costs more to retool and to retrain than to pull back some of those employees. And where is it that I can I can put them in another part of the business that they can learn another part of the business so that when it comes back time and it's the season, by golly days, I've, I've got them primed and ready to go. Now, certainly you can't do that in all in all venues, but that's that's kind of what I mean, Brian. Sure. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. Who would be your most admired leaders? Are there a couple of folks that come to mind? Well, there are. Um, one of them is Jimmy Carter. Uh, now, there's going to be all kinds of things about Carter's presidency, but I have to tell you, he has shown us what a former president is all about. I think Jimmy Carter has shown us what true leadership looks like. He didn't sit back and goes and makes speeches and gets a ton of money for them. And he doesn't just sit around and play golf. I mean, this is a man who said there is still work to be done through his Carter Institute for his work with Habitat with Humanity. Um, I think I think he's provided a wonderful example of ongoing leadership. Hmm. Steve Persante, who is the founder of Barrett Kohler Publisher. Okay. Barrett Kohler Publisher is a an anomaly in the publishing world. Their motto is to create a world that works for all. I have never seen a publisher spend such diligent time being so careful about what books they publish and are they worthwhile reading. And they will stick with a book. They don't just, they don't print 101 books, throw them up against the wall and see what sticks. Um, I have, as a, I'm so thrilled that, that my book, my newest book, Gifts from the Mountain, is out through Barrett Kohler. But more pleased that I am is that Steve Persanti's created an organization that sees its authors not as competitors but as collaborators. Uh, we have an author's co-op in which we get together and share ideas. Uh, we have, you know, we, we have access to buy any of the books at a, at a discounted rate. Um, there's an author's retreat so that we can learn and grow from each other. You won't see that, I'm, I'm sure, in, in many of the large publishing houses. So I think Steve Persante is, is an amazing leader. Another one, I, I haven't met this man, but I followed, uh, followed behind him working with some of the healthcare organizations, is Quint Studer with the Studer Group. That's S-T-U-D-E-R. Quint is Q-U-I-N-T. Uh, Quint did some remarkable turns around turnarounds in hospital settings. One in first in Chicago, later at Baptist Hospital in Florida. Um, he's since created a consulting company that works with the hospitals on a what what they call Studer principles, pillars of success, and they're very 
Um, they're both numbers driven, but they're absolutely leader driven. Um, and uh, I, I think he's d- developed an amazing process for that. And the last one is my sister, uh, Susan Whitaker Mullins. Susan has created, first off, she's one of the co-founders of uh, Mediators Across Borders. She can create and lead groups in ways that uh, just leave me breathless. She created, um, she's created a, um, an after-school tutoring program. My sister was involved for a long time within the television industry in Hollywood, and she realized that when there were down periods of time, there were very bright and brilliant people who aren't, weren't being used, and there, there were schools that needed after-school mentoring for kids and teachers. So she created a way to put together folks from, from, from her community in the Hollywood uh, in the Hollywood community with schools and match them up. Hmm. Um, so I, I find her an absolutely brilliant role model. Right now she has just created in her own neighborhood. There was no neighborhood watch. There was no, there are fires in the area. How the heck do we get out? How do we work with the police? She has created and organized, we're talking a couple hundred homes uh, into a, a community that is developing is how do we care for each other? How do we watch out for each other? Um, both in times of, of crisis as well as in times of calm. So I think she's a marvelous example. Wow. What about some of the traits you consider most important in a leader? The the traits? Yes. Um, one is humility. Humility comes from the word humus, and if you think about humus, humus is is the wonderful stuff that allows things to grow. So humility is 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 actually not only um, not blowing your own horn, but being a person that allows other people to grow, which I think is consistent with what I said. Is that I think great leaders um, uh, uh, bring out the best in other people. It is the ability to capture vision and to be a storyteller, and it is and it is the ability to inspire people, not motivate. Motivation is like dandruff; that's in your head. I just oh, gives my my skin the willies when someone says, "Oh, we need a motivational speaker." Go, no, you don't. <laughs> And, and managers say, I have to motivate my people. No, you don't. You can't do it. You don't know how to do it. It's up to people to motivate themselves. However, can you create a climate? Can you, by your words and your behavior, give people hope that inspires? And to be inspired is to be in spirit with that which is, what will you do that that people say, now I see what is possible and this draws me out. So I think great leaders also inspire people. Hmm. Um, you know, when you reference managers and motivating, obviously it would be difficult to put a percentage on it, but, I mean, is it pretty rare in your experience to find these folks out there that are inspiring their people? You know what? I think I can't answer that. And here's why I can't. Because of my belief that leaders exist in all levels of the organization, that it's not just the people at the top. And sometimes it's in spite of the people at the top. Sure. That I would be hard-pressed 
to say what percentage do, don't. Um, I think when you walk into, I don't care whether it's a mechanic shop or whether it's a boardroom, you can tell by looking in people's faces. You can tell by watching their body language. You can tell by how they interact with each other. Is this a place where people feel safe, where people are excited, where people are empowered? And if that's the case, somewhere along the line, there's some really good leaders who are providing inspiration. Some of the some of the systems I've been in, uh, Innova Healthcare System out of the out of Virginia, is doing some wonderful work related to to leadership. And of course, there are always going to be pockets of um, where it doesn't work. When human beings is human beings, and even as I talk this stuff, Brian, I'll tell you sometimes I screw up too. So, um, but I I think what counts most is our intentions. And do we do we when we've screwed up? Do we come? This is not what I intended. Sure. Let's try this one again. You've offered many pieces of advice. Is there any other important piece of advice you've been given that you could share? Here's one of my prejudices right now. That is that I think great leaders also need to be extraordinary listeners. I am concerned. It's why I wrote one of my other books, Talking Cheap, It's Priceless. Uh, I think that we have become so enamored with our technology, so overwhelmed by the speed at which we think things have to happen. Notice I say think things have to happen. (laughs) That we have forgotten the, the most appropriate, the most compelling way in which we connect as human beings, and that's in conversation. Conversation not sent over an email. Conversation that is done, at the very least, ear-to-ear, if not face-to-face. When I wrote Gifts from the Mountain, one of the things, while it looks like it's a, a book for an individual, I actually wrote free, downloadable, what I call conversation fire starters, one for leaders, one for coaches, and one for community members hoping to ask some critical questions about each one of the learning points in there to drive conversation deeper hmm. um, within within organizations. I, I think the new mon- mantra has to be start talking and get to work, not stop. And hmm. that talking includes being able to really be a critical listener. And by critical, I don't mean as in criticizing but I mean someone who absolutely says what's really going on here. It's our inability to listen to each other um, that has led to some of the, you know, some of the disasters that we've that we've seen. Sure. In addition to the stories that you've shared, any other story you can think about that would encapsulate what you are all about? This was an observation again of uh, of me in which when we are presented with crisis. Um, one of and it's and it's, a, it's a learning point for me, and it's an opportunity of growth because oftentimes my immediate response is to jump in and fix it, just make it better right away. And that's not always the smartest response. And um, as a metaphor for this, um, a number of years ago, I was it was a Saturday. I was in at our house. I was drying my hair, and all of a sudden, the fire alarm went off. 
and I was alone in the house, and if you've ever heard your fire alarm go off, you know darn well you'd never sleep through that sucker. <laughs> and I uh, I grabbed a chair, and I, I climbed up to where the the fire alarm was, and oh, man, it hurt so much. I just wanted to turn that thing off, and well, there was no... There, there was no off, there was no off switch that I could see, and I, I jumped down and I called my husband at his office, and uh, I said, "What? I can't. How do I do this?" He said, "Well, if you don't see one, he said, we'll pull the battery out." So I climbed back up on this this chair again, and I yanked this battery out, and it's dangling by these three wires, and the alarm is still going off. I thought, "This is this is nuts." I, I call, go back. I call Bill. He said, well, I, I don't know. I said, cut the wires. I said, well, well, cut the wires? I mean, that's electricity. He said, well, it's only nine volts. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, great. Easy for you to say. <laughs> I'm standing up here. I'm hacking away at these wires. I cut the, I don't know, it was the red wire, the yellow wire. The alarm is still going off. It's hanging by one blue wire. All of a sudden, I've got my hand over my ear. I climb off this chair. I walk down to the end of our hall where there's another bedroom. I take the chair. I climb up to where there is another fire alarm. I open up that fire alarm. I yank on the battery. It stops. And I turn around and dangling by one wire, the fire alarm at the end of our bedroom didn't hurt anybody. Didn't do anything. I just killed the wrong fire alarm. Oh, boy. And I thought, how many times, Eileen, do you do that? You didn't gather all the information, and look what you got. And I think that it was a a lesson for me. It might be a lesson for some other folks. Sure, definitely. Uh, what about what is up next for you? Oh, what's up next for me? Uh, well, I, I, I've had this um, kind of mantra that I've been working on the last two years, and it's to play bigger in a world of possibilities for a world of difference. I think I, I find myself still playing too small. And playing bigger means literally a bigger a bigger stage. How do I impact and influence uh, more people? Uh I have with a colleague, uh, we have trademarked uh, in her own voice. And my notion is how do we, uh, will we create retreats, seminars, training materials that allow women to claim their own voice? Hmm. Uh, I'm working on another uh, concept for a book about women in leadership. if you look at some of the new marketing literature that's coming out, um, we're 51% of the buying pop population. Uh, we have we have a huge role to play. I think in in it's not writing the power balance; it's in getting the world right again. Um, I'm quite concerned that in a world that seems so violent, that women and children are the bear the brunt of the violence, uh, bear the brunt of war, um, bear the bear the brunt of economic downturn. And so I'd like to see is how, you know, the more we can, um, the more we can help women uh, rise to leadership positions in any place, it, I think we all benefit from it. So that's probably part of the, 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 next, the next piece. Sure. Uh, along with the whole thing that has always intrigued me and I've been very involved in is the whole work, work life integration. 
how do I put together the work that I do and the life that I lead so it's a congruent whole? And that continues to be a, a strong thread and a core. Sure. Okay. That was fun. <laughs> well, I enjoyed it. And, and again, want to commend you on, on your leadership and tremendous responses today. That concludes the podcast with National Leader of the Month, Eileen McDar. Come back next month for another edition of the Leadership Podcast Series from LeaderNetwork.org.